Imperial Stout kind of guy. Um, I was always the dude on my racing teams that would drink anyways, and that's always what I would kind of seek because basically you could just have one bottle and be yeah. good to go. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you didn't need to have an excess. Nice. Um, yeah, and I think growing up in the Midwest, it was like that wasn't readily available. It was much more of the um, how do I put this nicely. Uh, Yingling, Rolling Rock. Yep, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, that's been great. What is what is your favorite kind of beer? Um, I'm really into. Uh, well, I, I should say in Pennsylvania. I'm from Pennsylvania, like most other people who worked at Apex at some point. <laughs> and um, so Yingling, growing up on like Yingling, Rolling Rock, definitely get it. Yep, I get yep. it. The importance of those beers. I'm definitely a massive snob as of 2020. I was okay. always like kind of into like, I was always really into craft beer the last couple, many years. And, but 2020 took a different turn. Like I'm really, uh, I've gone down some rabbit holes and <laughs> I'm into like extremely niche, like, uh, Belgian lambics from certain regions oh, cool. kind of stuff. Um, Very cool. so I, I've been drinking tons of Belgian lambic Very varieties cool. and, um, I got to go to Belgium this summer Nice. Uh, or uh, I guess it was. 2019. Okay. And, uh, it was day before the tour de France traveled around to a bunch of the breweries, oh, awesome. Lambics and all the, all the riders getting ready. And man, you see stage one then I left year. the day before it started. Oh, okay. Yeah. Still though. So it was a bummer, but it, I mean, it was buzzing everything, yeah, all the, the, I mean, they had a, in the little town square, downtown Brussels, they had the, the massive stage live music playing. They had like a hundred foot screen that was showing like clips from the sixties tour de France and stuff, uh, tons of vendors out with like classic gear and all these exhibits. So it's quite an event. Yeah. It would have been cooler to stay the extra day, but Man, that's super cool though. So you're really into, um, Belgian beers. And so, yeah. um, I've been getting more into that. That's interesting that 2020. So what was it about 2020 that made you flip that switch? Well, to be honest, I think it's, I went to Belgium Yeah, <laughs> and I like saw, cause I wasn't, I was just getting introduced to them then. And then I like saw how they make it. So the places where they're making it and all the different like style, the little, like the little details that they do. Yeah. And that just started, that just got me buzzing about <laughs> it. I was just like, man, I really want to like explore what they have here. And, uh, the more I drink that, the less I want other beers. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> so I'm trying to do this thing now where I'm going to, I'm going to try to wean myself off by shifting back to beers like Yingling and Rolling Rock more often. Do you think that that'll make you like appreciate I think so. The Belgian beers more. Well, I think yeah, I think it'll be both. I think it'll be both. Yeah, because it, it's like a, being used to really like very well crafted coffee, and then going to like a drip coffee at a race or something like that, and then right. going back to your coffee right. afterwards and being like, oh, wow, this is so this much is better. What I was missing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, appreciation. Yeah, I, you know, and something about a Yingling or a Rolling Rock, kind of mid grade lager now it's such a different taste too mm-hmm. that uh, I can kind of appreciate that now too. Okay. Yeah. I think in the Midwest, it's more like Bud Light, uh, Miller Light, those things. Yeah. So I don't know if I can just switch to those and have appreciation right. to well, the, for yeah. those. It's a little different. <laughs> Definitely. Is uh, it, uh, are you from Missouri? I am actually from, um, 
Bloomington, Indiana. So hmm. Southern Indiana. Um, but good guess on St. Louis. I buzzed over to St. Louis and I was there for um, a little under two years um, before I moved to Boulder. Nice. So that was, nice. yeah, so you were close. To I was, I was very close. Um, yeah, we're drinking a Cincinnati beer that he was kind enough to bring. Um, and it is very good. Yeah. It's from Rennegeist. Rheingeist. I'm just that bad at anything. Not super American. Um, <laughs> well, anyways, guys, um, welcome back, um, to the training edge podcast. Thank you for joining. This is episode number three, where we are doing, um, a coaching round table format. Um, uh, my guest who you've already heard talk is Joseph Cavaretta. He is joining me today, um, which I am very grateful for, to chat just all sorts of different topics and just brainstorm back and forth, just have a just educational time during this, which is, which is very cool um, as coaches don't get that super regularly, so it's been great. Um, I got a ton of feedback on the last two episodes with Mac um, that were also coaching roundtables. Those were great. If you haven't listened to those already, definitely go back and take a listen. Um, all right, so to today. So Joseph is a sports scientist, um, running coach, performance specialist who also lives here in Boulder, Colorado in my area. Um, he has his own coaching company, um, but also works uh, for Leomo as a sports scientist in, in biomechanic research. So I'm stoked to chat with him today because that is obviously very different than my background. Um, and yeah, I'm just in general, it's always very cool to dive into different things and hear things that you don't really know a lot about. So, um, we are going to go kind of in the similar format that we did in the last episodes where we're going to go back and forth, um, just with a question each and we'll see where it leads us. And yeah, it's not super scripted, so we'll just see where it goes. Joseph, thank you for joining me and yeah, welcome to the pod. Thanks for having me. This is great being here in, uh, Abbey Road Recording Studios, <laughs> London, UK. Definitely a nice spot you've got here. Thank and you. Uh, looking forward to it. We are um, recording in my humble garage um, for true ambiance. Um, but it's, turn- it's it's a good little place. It's grassroots. Yeah, it's very, it's very grassroots. It adds character. Um, all right, let's dive in. I'm prepped. The, do you want to go first? Um, <clears throat> why don't you go ahead? Okay. It's your house. All right. It's your All recording right. studio. Perfect. All right. Um, so my first question is something that I've been dealing with, uh, actually an odd amount lately. Um, which, and I think that's because within, uh, lockdown, a lot of my athletes without races took different avenues to try and explore new things. Um, and here in Colorado that all often resulted in those athletes finding really extreme adventures per se. So that could be doing the Colorado trail. It could be, um, doing other very extreme Alpine passes. It could be doing an ultra race or run, um, that they hadn't done before. So one of the things I was curious on your opinion on or approach on within how you approach athletes, um, is the basically ability to pace yourself in that, in those extreme examples. So when you are tackling varying terrain, and needing to basically go entirely more or less off of feel, um, maybe because you're at a super high altitude, maybe because you are, 
um, running without any sort of metrics or something like that. So basically like as an ultra runner deciding when to walk first run or a, uh, mountain biker, uh, deciding to hike a bike instead of ride that kind of thing. So when you are in, yeah, approaching those extreme style athletes, how would you go about that? It's a really good question. Um, <clears throat> you're starting off with the, with the heat today. <laughs> um, let's see. So there's a lot of good, uh, yeah, there's, there's a lot of good themes in there. It, definitely COVID has been super interesting to give a bunch of athletes who are normally hyper-focused on what they're trying to succeed at opportunity to branch out and do all sorts of mountain runs. Like you said, up huge mountain passes, high altitude treks that they're just, uh, is totally new things that, you know, you want to, you want to be able to do at some point for enjoyment or just to say you did it or complete the challenge, but it's like totally new territory. And so, um, those environments for, for me, the, the biggest thing that, that people need to sort of acclimate to, um, non-altitude speaking, just sort of environmentally, it's, it's a whole different environment up in the Alpine terrain. Uh, the, obviously the, the high altitude, the lower partial pressure of oxygen, uh, the rocky terrain, the extreme swings and weather, the dryness, how quickly you can dehydrate, and just the lack of, of resources. A lot of times there's no cell service. There's no, you might be by yourself for a long period of time. So there's like, there's so much going on to be able to tackle that. Um, that pacing becomes a huge question for not only completing something, but maybe even for safety, um, bonking. 15 miles out into the Alpine and not being able to do much and have no cell service is not a fun, not a fun experience. I've definitely been there in my history and it can happen to anybody. So, um, pacing, I would say, um, you know, the, the first thing is to have a scope of what it is you're trying to accomplish and have an honest scope of that. If it's, if it's six miles around the Boulder Reservoir versus six miles up a 14,000 foot peak, uh, just be, you know, have an honest awareness of the differences of the two. How much time is this actually going to take me? And what's my realistic, uh, rate, you know, climbing rates at that altitude, uh, with that much gear, maybe you're carrying three times as much water as you might normally have. Um, all of these things can just make figuring out and planning ahead for a pace. If you don't already know how you behave in that terrain, super challenging. And so, um, I would say the first thing to do is lots of research on what you're trying to do, understand how technical the trail is going to be. Um, if there's, you know, a class three section of trail, that's going to slow you down immensely more than, you know, a class one or something like that, just more Rocky and maybe involving hands, uh, know what you're getting yourself into and establish a really clear idea of how much time you, you expect to be out there. And then, uh, aside from that, without knowing how you would uh, have done this before. If you've maybe trained at altitude a lot, do you have some general ideas of how you normally pace up there or you're not doing any tests or anything? Um, the best thing is just the talk test for me, be able to be able to talk. And it's increasingly difficult to talk the higher you go, yep. as you know. Yep. It, uh, it gets really hard. Some people at the highest altitudes may not even be able to walk really, really slow and still like not, you know, be breathing kind of hard. Um, so there's a lot of topics introduced with that, how hard you're actually working, how hard it feels and things like that. But in general, have a scope of how long you need to be out there, or how long you think you might be out there, and then try to 
keep the intensity low until you're familiar with, you know, what the level of effort is to actually complete something like that. Yeah. I get that. The talk test. I love that. Cause it's uh it's an oldie. It's an old fashioned one that I think people have tried really hard to get away from, but it's a, it survives for a reason. It's yeah. a, it's a good marker. Uh, I still come back to it time to time. Yeah. Yeah. That, I mean, I love the one thing that it's been, um, interesting to try and teach athletes is demands of varying terrain. So what the, as you mentioned, kind of the trail, how it is, how technical it is, how it can be a beat down. And that is something that, um, will add up quickly. Um, and people are very oftentimes focused on singularly within how much their body is being put through. Um, yeah, I mean, it's how do you prep athletes to take on, I guess, like very demanding, uh, trail. So like, let's say for example, it is a, there's a lot of class three, class four, um, maybe even some climbing. How do you, uh, prep for that? Well, um, definitely risk assessment is first Yeah. based on where, what their comfort levels and skill levels are currently. Obviously if somebody, you know, is coming to me and they want to do, uh, for instance, uh, the Crestone Traverse, say that, you know, a uh, historic road cyclist, not doing a lot of racing this year, training to branch out, get onto some trails. Um, you know, if they came to me and wanted to do something like that, that involves some class four, some significant exposure and real mountain awareness. Obviously that's, you know, we got to have a discussion about yeah, like, right. what are the, what are the, what's the reality of yeah. these types of challenges? But, um, you know, as long as if you know it's within your skill capacity and what you're comfortable with, uh, the preparation physically would be um, take what what they're conditioned for. Usually, say you know if it's a road cyclist or if it's a versus a runner versus a trail runner, um, and just try to match it up with what the specific demands of the mountain are going to be, and try to supplement a little bit. You know, it's it's really different training for a road cyclist. Um, there's not a lot, if any, eccentric muscle contraction going on, and uh, going down, dropping 4,000 feet off of a mountain is probably going to be the hardest part of the day for that individual. You're not going to be going up, you know, you probably got the lung power to, to press on at a pretty good pace going up, but going down, you know, if you, if you haven't descended a couple thousand feet in the past, uh, I can tell you the feeling after 3000 feet of descent on the legs, even if you're just walking can be pretty immense. You know, you start oh, to get yeah. real shaky legs, you start to get real jelly legs, you start to lose a little bit of your confidence in your footing, which is where ankle rolls and things like that can start to happen or be a risk. So yeah, I mean, just, you know, try to match up with what their current strengths are, what, you know, and then, and then what the demands of the route they're going to do are. And I will say it really depends on what the route itself is and having a good understanding of the route. How do you find route details? Like, let's say an athlete's like, oh, I want to do this race. It's in this trail network. How do you go about figuring that out? Well, um, we live in a great day and age with, uh, all kinds of awesome <laughs> apps that I use now. <laughs> uh, Strava definitely, um, just getting into, if you, if you, if you got a friend who likes to run mountains, just start to look at who they follow on Strava, start to search for some activities, see if somebody's done the route already. A lot of times, at least in Colorado, there's not a lot of routes that haven't been done by couple people at least. Right, right. Um, so searching around there, just looking for some, some beta as they would say that way, uh, hiking project, mountain project, summitpost.com, all these different, um, all these different forums and websites that offer a little bit different information each. 
So, um, you know, you, you almost have to just go to a couple different sources because they'll all be a little different too. Mm-hmm. Like reporting, like the distance is like never no. uniform and like the <laughs> elevation and stuff. And, yeah. Um, so yeah, pull, pulling it in from, from a wide variety of resources and then good old map, you know, <laughs> almost, almost the forgotten art of, of just a paper map is, uh, is invaluable for those types of planning. Yeah. So it's a lot like, uh, yeah, I mean, you basically take the in-depth detailing you might go into if uh, you're doing a time trial or you're coaching for a, an athlete through a time trial, but then you're doing it and you can do this within mountain bikers too, where you're finding out trail condition, finding out maybe what kind of, uh, handling wise focus they need to be focused on. Um, so that's good. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I think that's actually really cool. There's actually, I mean, here in Colorado, um, yeah, I mean, you can go on to, all trails or something like that and, and see a review or see photos. And that'll kind of give you at least a slight inkling into what the demands might be. Um, yeah, I would say don't go onto Strava and follow your, uh, maybe Killian Jornet's like fastest time up a trail and say, yeah, that's, that's the, my target range. Um, maybe get a little bit more, I guess, realistic <laughs> on that front. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Uh, always stay within your comfort zone. It's my first rule. And me following anything that Killian does is immediately <laughs> breaking that rule. <laughs> yeah, I would say for most people. Dang. Okay. Well, I, yeah. I like all that. That's good. Um, I've been just impressed with, so, you know, in my experience, you, the more you know your body and the more you're able to pace that, especially over longer and longer duration and demands, um, the better you will be. So, um, you know, you can go on a ride and I, or a run or whatever your activity is. And maybe, um, you get an hour in and you're like, ah, oh, man, I just feel horrible right now. Like what step back, see what you did during that first hour, because at least, especially in Colorado, it's very front loaded. So you have that, um, demand really early on. So, you know, figure out why you felt bad and then try and change your execution. And, and that does, goes a long way. Um, just in general. That brings up uh, another interesting point about acclimation mm-hmm. and physiological acclimation versus environmental acclimation. And when I have um, athletes who are going to prepare for a trail of mountain race or an ultra race that's going to be at a higher altitude than they live, it stirs up so many questions because, like, inherently it's live low, race high by just that's just the, you know, what we have to work with, which is obviously. Yep probably the least favorable scenario. Yeah. Yeah. So how do you, um, I spent a lot of time discussing with, uh, athletes around Boulder, how to manage that. What should I expect when I go up? How should I train when I go up? What benefits, if any, should I expect in doing that? Because it is living low training high, which is really common around Boulder because we're so, we're just at the foot of the mountains. Almost every run or ride takes you up in altitude at some point, uh, whether it's a thousand feet or if you're riding to, Long's Peak or something like that, several thousand feet. Um, so with uh, when I'm working with an athlete who wants to prepare for a race that's higher, uh, I like to separate those two. One of them is physiological acclimation, which would only occur by living or spending excess time at a higher altitude. Uh, but the environmental acclimation provides a ton of benefit also, and it's just what you were talking about, just being familiar with the environment. How can I perform up here? What does hard feel like up here? What are the kind of logistics that I have to manage? I have to, you know, does my hydration per hour have to go up? Does my, do my calories go up or stay the same? How do the wild swings and weather, like, how do I manage that? Is it going to change, you know, when it goes from 
super, super hot to like dropping in temperature, 40 degrees and storming, which can totally happen Mm -hmm. all summer in the high, high peaks. How do I manage that? How does that change my game plan? How does that change my pacing? And so a lot of the, um, training and preparation for those types of events that'll do is a lot of the fitness is built. The real fitness will be built down in Boulder. Um, but going up at the right times to those, to do those high Alpine treks and climb the peaks and, uh, just to get a, just to get comfortable, to know how you're going to pace, to know what your limitations are up there and just to learn your body. Like you said. Yeah. What about high, just out of curiosity, how like high extreme stuff. So, you know, uh, yeah, I mean, racing on maybe on foot, so it might you might be on that duration for a little bit longer at maybe thirteen thousand feet plus, or maybe you're staying at twelve over for the entire duration of the race. It's gonna hurt. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's gonna hurt for sure. Um, if you uh, so in regards to pacing, I think it's pretty valuable before you have a if say that you have a race and the majority of the race is going to be within a pretty tight band of, of altitude, you know, maybe like I'm going to be at 13,000 feet for, I don't know, 13 miles, something like that. Uh, it definitely pays to go do some test pacing up there mm-hmm. and you can use heart rate or something like that. Um, you know, if my aerobic threshold heart rate is 150 in Boulder, I can go up there and see, you know, where 150 puts me relatively in, in the pace. Uh, it's going to be a lot slower. I, there's altitude conversion numbers can like definitely vary a lot, but I've, I've heard and read a lot about, um, losing 1% aerobic capacity every three to 600 feet that you go above your acclimation starting at 4,500 feet or something like that. Um, and just in practice, testing out some of those, you know, different conversions, doing tests at high altitude versus Boulder or a sea level versus Boulder. I, I find a lot of athletes in that range. And so, um, you could, you know, you can, try to plan a race at that high altitude based on some using some of those tools and conversions and get an idea for, okay, if I would normally run this at eight minutes per mile in Boulder flats, but I'm going up to 13,000 feet, what percent decrease can I expect? A lot of times it's just like, well, you're walking, you know, yeah. cause it's 10% or something like that. But yeah. Yeah. The big thing that I've found for like the high Alpine races tends to be find your line where that might be. Um, so heart rate of course does help. Um, but then find where you can con- basically get yourself to and get yourself back down from. Um, so the, not basically your point of no return, stay away from that and figure out where it is. And that can be basically getting up to those high altitudes and doing what you kind of mentioned, like little trials of figuring out like, well, what, what happens if I do a 15 second sprint at 12,000 feet? Um, and yeah, I mean, and basically once you have that marker or that control limit, then you can kind of, that can be, all right, this is when I'm walking or this is, and it does tend to be when you can talk, um, or not talk. Um, but yeah. And then the other really curious thing within, um, and this applies to downhilling as well, but, uh, your ability to, uh, think clearly, not have brain fog, um, be like just on that verge, but then have control when you're descending. So to take on running downhill for three hours, um, that takes a ton of focus. And that is also really something that is important to train, at least in, uh, that I've found. So, yeah, that's a really great point. It's, it's, uh, it's longer. It's the descents up high are typically longer, more technical, 
and a lot more hypoxic. Yep. Without a lot, with a less, yep. a lot less oxygen. So, um, yeah, the, the brain, the brain aspect to it is, is really important. You might even pace a little bit differently up there. If, if, if normally, you know, at your lower altitudes, the, you know, you kind of push it to the limit and then you, you kind of float the downhill and, you know, still able to go kind of fast. It might not necessarily work up there because yeah. the recovery is longer. By the time you're on that downhill, it's like three times as long as you're used to. And, you know, yeah, like you just might start to fade a little bit. And uh, so a little, maybe a little more even pacing for someone like that might be a better option. But like you said, knowing your limits is, I don't know if there's any way to, to really understand your limits other than getting up there and, and trying it out. Yeah. All right. Good one. All right. You're up. Good start. Yeah. Good start. <laughs> um, so I'm going to shift a ton here okay. to right. the bike. Okay. Um, and also not just bike, but a little bit of like form on the, the idea of form on the bike. I am not, uh, I don't have a huge background in cycling, so naturally I'm, I'm really curious about your experience. Um, but it seems like with all athletes who are endurance athletes, a lot of times the first thing that we're taught is like get fit. And like building fitness is key. Maybe like depending on who, you know, if you're what kind of interest you have or what kind of coach you have, um, maybe not so much focus on like technique initially, because it's more like I got to go the distance and mm-hmm. I got to go fast. Um, just in my experience, I see then secondary to that, people will start to try to optimize like technique a little bit more. Um, so what do you, you know, in your experience on the bike, racing at the elite level, coaching, what do you see as like, what technique on the bike matters what what would you consider like to be the most important kind of form for cycling racing and training and um have you like had any experience uh coaching people with that or trying to like improve their form or position cool good one um i like this one because i think it's taken on interesting phases throughout my coaching career um because i think every single athlete has probably been on a group ride or driven by a rider on the side of the road that um, you can see probably that they're hurting on the bike or they're probably just moving so much that you're like, Oh man. Um, so yes, it's super important. Um, when you can, you know, basically touch on that subject, it does tend to vary based off of the athlete. Um, so one of the, you know, the very first cycling studio that I was a part of, um, was comp trainer. So it was all comp trainer and they did their, you know, spin analysis thing. Um, that they were pumping up very severely. Um, and we would use it from time to time, but more or less it was kind of like a gimmick because uh, the ability to get an athlete to be more efficient in an hour doesn't, it's very difficult to do. Um, so, but ta- technology's gotten a lot better. And um, yes, efficiency is huge. Um, I would say to start, uh, and me and Mac talked a little bit about this, but was just efficiency of pedal stroke and efficiency of cadence. Um, so right out of the gate, I pretty much touch on cadence. And when you get an athlete thinking about that and start thinking about activation within their pedal stroke, they tend to start thinking about like, Oh man, am I, am I smooth or or not? Um, and, uh, when you get an athlete first working with power, get them off the three, three second power, get them off the 10 second power. Um, yes, it's annoying and cyclists tend to be very, uh, we tend to be a little bit ADHD. So we hate to see the, the number jump around, but it shows us that 
you know, yes, we're locked into this device, but we're not as efficient as we think. So that single second power shows us that. And then when you have athletes that live in a variety of places that have to deal with a variety of terrain, um, that is a huge tool as well, because once you get them to a place where they can kind of control that, it's such a success because, um, I've had one athlete that, uh, she really wanted to dial into making herself as a, like as smooth as possible. So we started her out and she was time trialing at the time. So we started her out on a flat terrain and then she really focused on that and then she perfected that. And then we started introducing more and more climbing cause she was transitioning into a little bit more gravel riding. And she is now one of my smoothest athletes and we've, it's been about a year, but it was something that was like phenomenal to see. Um, and a lot of that was of course her frustration and focus. So, um, her stubbornness, um, and willingness to care, I guess, but then also just getting into, Hey, work on this, work on shifting early, work on trying this and let's see how that affects, um, even just the power side. And then, uh, likely it'll result in cadence and so on. So once we get that smoothness to occur, um, then I'll start diving into form. Um, and the form is, is it can be another whole bag of worms because, um, one, I'm a virtual coach, so I, I very rarely actually see my athletes. I ride with the ones in Boulder, but the rest, I, I don't really see that often. So it is hard to see that. Um, I would say on a majority of the riders that I work with on form, they are pursuing time trialing. That's what they care most about. Um, they tend to be riding in a most static position. They tend to need to worry the most about it, I guess. Um, and in that way, I usually have them do maybe like send me a video of how they're looking on the trainer on the bike. Um, I have worked with Leomo a little bit with different riders. Um, and then, uh, just also having them do full race simulation and seeing how they're able to maintain. I also, uh, oh, there goes my dog. <laughs> I also tend to, um, do a buildup through time trialing. So they are basically taking a low tolerance. So asking them to maintain a position and really focus on something. Um, and, uh, and this is kind of like what overgears do as well, where they're focusing on something and they're focusing on maybe activating their glutes or activating a different muscle group. And then, uh, from there, we're able to kind of like tune in and dial in and then extend that period out. So then all of a sudden it kind of comes second nature and their, um, their tolerance of doing so is big. Um, so yeah, I would say that's like the biggest process I take. Um, I'd say cadence is probably the biggest tool I use across all athletes. Uh, and then form wise, this is interesting cause I just started with cross, um, season for a couple of my athletes and a couple of my local guys. So we've been working more on form and where you need to be on the bike. And we do, I do this with my mountain bikers as well. So it's, that is a whole nother side too, obviously, cause that's form within technique and achieving an outcome that way. But yeah, I would say those are probably the biggest things. Um, as far as tools to do it, one of the, um, things I have coming up on my questions is basically the technology to help fringe that gap between coaches and riders. And I'm still struggling with that a little bit. Um, I've had conversations with a couple people on remote coaching on, on what that, or sorry, not remote coaching, remote fitting and what that looks like. Um, and how difficult that can be because you're then working with, uh, tech, another technology barrier, um, having the athlete then do all the manipulations themselves. 
Um, it's one thing to be standing next to somebody and getting them to move or change and, hey, do it this way. But it's another thing to vocalize and then get them to do it themselves. Um, so I'm curious on kind of like what your experience is on that side of that barrier, I guess. That's, oh, that's another, uh, that's another big one is using yeah. the tech and bridging that gap. But before, before that, I just want to go okay. back. I really liked your answer about all, all of that. That was really, really great information. And, uh, just, I, I really like your approach that you take. Um, first being about like just that awareness. I, f- I feel like that is such a, a key step is to just generate awareness of movement because it is, if you never talk about it, if you never really think much about it, it, it is just subconscious. You just, yeah. you just ride the bike or you just run. And, um, the, just the power of like bringing a little awareness to one thing can be, can be it could be really powerful. Yeah. It can be really profound for somebody. And like you said, it can be simple or what seems simple, like managing cadence. Um, but it can have a lot of big effects just because of all these other things that they're thinking about now. It's not just about the cadence, not just about that number popping up on my head unit. It's like, how do I, you know, now I'm thinking about my foot going around the crank. Yep. What's the position of my ankle? What's the position of my foot? How is my leg like starting this? And then like, what's happening in this, you know, and just, it starts to propagate up. And, um, so that's such a cool like process to, to see with just creating awareness first. And that's with like, getting onto like the Leomo stuff. Um, it's kind of like the first thing I like about that is the moment you put a sensor on somebody and you tell them this is a motion sensor, it's going to track how you move immediately. All they think about is how they're moving now. And, yep, yep. uh, it brings up a lot of awareness to their biomechanics. Even if you don't change anything, they're just like, they're thinking about it and they start to notice like a lot more stuff too. Usually after the first time you test somebody with, you know, Leomo sensors or any other sensor, um, maybe they've never talked about their form before, but after that, if you go and kind of like debrief, okay, like how did it feel? What were you, what were you thinking about? What was going through your head? All of a sudden there's a ton of stuff to talk about. Yeah. And so that awareness is really cool. It's cool to, to build. And, um, I like then what you said also about starting to, um, find where you want to be or find what, what technique you want to settle into. And then bit working to sustain it is, is a, a really cool topic. Um, and I like that training philosophy. That's something that at, at Leoma we're really trying to, to provide some tools for is to like exactly that pretty much, cool. um, identify it, train it, and then try to work to sustain it is like the big thing because good form is only 50% useful if you can only hold it for right, exactly. 21K and a 42K or something like that. So, yep. um, yeah, really, really great approach. I definitely, I definitely can appreciate all those topics. Thanks. Do you want to, should we get into the to the next part of it? Um, yeah. I mean, essentially what I, I guess just to wrap that up, the, what I find interesting and I, what oftentimes happens is when you start working, like, let's say for example, it's an athlete that just started working with power and it's just like overload. It's like, well, what do I do with this tool? Um, and it can, so when you do have that selective thing, like, all right, this is what we are choosing to work on. Cause that's our priority. Um, and then we'll start to expand once you've kind of hit that marker, um, it, it can be frustrating as athletes because we want everything to happen immediately. And now, um, and we want quick progression and it doesn't, it just sometimes doesn't work that way. Um, yeah. so yeah, I mean, I think that, yeah, anytime you have the ability to select, um, certain things to target, it's pretty cool. Yeah. It always makes a big difference, but yeah, let's yeah. jump into, 
um, the technology side. So I'll fringe straight into my next one. Um, so obviously you have a big background and this is what you primarily do, which is biomechanics. Um, so I wanted to go ahead and just dive into that, but it's, it's it. big, but so I, I do want to have a little bit of a, a guideline, um, to start before I go into kind of like technology and, and how we, how I guess athletes and coaches can use that. What does biomechanics mean to you? Hmm. Yeah. I don't think I've ever been asked that. It's a great question. All right. What does it, what does it mean to me? Um, biomechanics to me means how we move in space and how we physically or mechanically produce a desired action. That's the super sky high right. kind of overview of it, right? And then within sports, it's different, but it's it's how are we how are we moving in space? How are we producing and controlling that movement to a desired outcome? And then we start to go deeper on what it is that we're trying to actually accomplish. If it's riding a bike faster, if it's running faster, if it's hiking faster, if it's lifting more weights, you know, all of a sudden then the the, the, the variables of interest and how we produce the movements become a little bit more specific I like that okay um i guess let's go into the specifics then so how and i know this can vary but what kind of technology can you use to figure that out like how do you um manipulate or perfect or improve or target at all yeah um so that goal for what it, what it is we're trying to hit, the, the difficulty there is that can be highly individual, how to achieve that. Let's say it's running. Biomechanics are extremely complex. Yeah. Like it's just, there's, there's, so many, there's so much individuality between people. We're not machines. We're not mechanical robots. We're humans with tissue and function and experiences and things like that. And, and so... Um, the one thing I don't necessarily like about biomechanics is it is um, it tends to be more of like a mechanical approach hmm. to a non-mechanical system, so to speak. Not purely mechanical, at least. Right. So, um, you know, I think it's I think it's more broad and it's more complex than it than the name implies. Um, so, you know, what is let's say I'm a, I'm a runner or a cyclist or a power lifter, and I want to get better form. The first question is, what is better form? Is there perfect form? Is there a good form to target? If I'm a runner, is there like the most optimal way to run? If I'm a cyclist, is there the most optimal way to cycle? Uh, the answers to those questions, we don't have. Yeah. We don't have, and what's likely is that uh, no, and it's highly individual. So there is an optimal maybe for one person, but that might be different from another person. So within that, um, kind of a good first step is like, how do we even start to measure stuff then? Um, there's a couple, all right. So the big, the big biomechanics sensors and methodology that's out there right now is, um, camera systems would be first, you know, a coach taking a video on their phone using, um, retool for bike fits as a, as a higher up, you know, actual motion tracking with, 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 uh, mocap markers, high speed cameras coming into play, being able to see frame by frame at a really high resolution, every movement. Um, all of these things have drawbacks. All of them have their own strengths and weaknesses. Um, 
most recently kind of IMU sensors are, are, hmm. are the kind of newer thing that's, that's really starting to get interesting. It's what we use at, at Leomo and that is a inertial measure, inertial measurement unit. And that's accelerometer accelerometer with three axes and a gyrometer with three axes. So measures, measures acceleration and it measures angular velocity or rotation. And, uh, so that's what we use at Leomo, and, and that's um, in a lot of newer products today. I know there's some power meters that are IMU-based now, um, running pods on the shoe that produce power or, or estimate and calculate power, and uh, the Leomo sensors that will that will give biomechanical metrics based on you know acceleration, uh, angular velocity, or calculations of those. Um, even in lifting, there's a lot with velocity-based training and various other metrics you can get from IMUs and uh, strength and conditioning now. So um, team sports, soccer, catapult, great system based on IMUs, track players around the field, see different metrics for what they're doing. Um, so these are some of the, the different measurement tools that are, that are out there. Um, I would say the, the big challenge right now is that so much of it is a specialist that you're going to see or it's in a lab and uh, the way that we behave uh, even getting a bike fit in a studio you know you, you have to question if it's really uh, how much of that's going to translate exactly to the road or my training conditions or etc so um, I would say anything that can be as race specific as possible or training specific as possible is really great. Like that's why I really like the IMUs because you slap it on, you take it out on your normal training rides or training runs and you can see how things actually behave in real time. So, um, that's the overview of kind of where it's at. How are we measuring? What are we trying to measure? And then, yeah, so like, this is such a, it's such a rabbit hole. I don't want to like, uh, go off on, you know, I want to, I want to try to stay the course here at least a little bit. Uh, let me know if I'm going too no, far No, you're good. Away. You're good. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll, let's see if I can guide a little bit. Let's say, um, cause that's a lot. Um, all right. Let's say you're, you said that basically we are not all just robots. We're not all the same. So then you have this device that measures movement and you're trying to make that movement, um, to be the best possible movement it can be. So what would you, what would if you're approaching an athlete, you're just starting, let's say they're, um, trying to do a, I don't know, for, I guess just practical sake, like, let's say just a high jump, just a straight up vertical high jump. Um, how would you approach, like, what would be your initial steps? Like, how would you take that technology and, um, tackle an athlete with it? Okay. So I like, much better structure actually when you when you set the course of the boat it's so much better uh, <laughs> oh, so <that's> good. <laughs> a high jumper uh so the first thing you want to do is you need to have an idea of uh from the coach perspective like what is it we're trying to accomplish to do this task better and so in a high jump maybe it's uh things like rate of force development on that hmm. penultimate step maybe it's range of motion having you know being able to achieve certain positions that you need to achieve um, timing, you know, you kind of set the success criteria from a performance perspective is the way I like to do it. Hmm. Um, because we're coaches first and, and, and athletes first and, um, we're robots second. So <laughs> like that, you know, so even if it's a, if it's a cyclist, if it's a runner, the, the first thing I try to do is go, what are we trying to do here? Are we trying to have a more stable, smooth motion of the pelvis? Do we need a bigger range of motion around the hips? If I'm a jumper, I need better loading of elastic energy, more force on that, on that final step, things like that, or more, I don't know, um, 
approach speed. I don't coach jumpers just as a disclaimer. <laughs> don't take any of this as advice. Um, but uh, we start with those and then you, we got to think about how can we, you know, obviously we're going to have an idea of what direction we want to take those things. It's either more or less mobility. It's more or less force. Uh, it's more or less rate of force development. And so um, the next step is to think about, I would say two things. One is how are we going to measure that and track it? And then two would be, can we measure it and track it? And if we can't really do that really, you know, really well in real conditions that are relevant, are there other contributing factors that we can start to think about that we can measure that are going to produce useful information for that in its place? And so um, that's when we start to go down the technology holes, like what can measure what, how well does it measure? If I can't, you know, one of the limitations of accelerometers is they don't measure direct velocity, like linear velocity. They measure acceleration. But if I run at a constant velocity, acceleration is going to be zero. It's not going to yeah. be super, you know, not super helpful if right. I'm looking for that. So um, all this tech has its limitations like that. So, um, you know, yeah, find, find what you need to measure. And then always relate the data back to that initial outcome Point, that yeah. you're looking for because yeah. it's so easy point. to get kind of lost in, in that data and what oh, yeah. can sometimes it's like you know you, you get into a dangerous situation where you're just measuring something because it can be measured yeah and like you know it's you you, you kind of see it here and there and and, and sometimes it might look cool because you got a lot of data or you got some fancy system but is it actually <laughs> actionable information does it actually relate to like what i'm really trying to do and so um i try to kind of follow that cycle like always Decide what you're trying to do, see what can be measured, see how you can track it, implement your, you know, your interventions, if it's going to be strength conditioning, if it's going to be technique work, and then uh, look at the change in the data, relate it back to what we're actually trying to do. Because if I get, um, if, you know, if I'm a runner and I spend a whole year trying to change my technique and then I go out and I run not a PR, was it really, you know? Was I doing the right stuff? Was it really effective? Maybe like, yeah, maybe it looks better when I move or maybe I'm doing certain objective measures better. But if it ultimately isn't making me a faster runner, you have to question like, what is the, you know, what's actually going on here? Right. So I try to not get too lost. And I try to, you know, biomechanics, you can get lost real quick. Yeah. Um, there's so much to measure, especially with um, triaxial accelerometers I am use because there's at minimum... Uh, 600 data points per second. Wow. At maximum, like, I mean, just with a hundred Hertz sensor, uh, at maximum 900 data points per second or, or more. Wow. So, um, <laughs> you really got to like figure out what, you know, what it is you actually want to measure and don't just tr try not to just pick something cause it seems right or it seems cool or it seems relevant. Um, keep that, keep that performance in mind when you're trying to, when you're trying to think about you know, yeah. movement and stuff. Yeah. I mean, similar to the, the whole concept of like kind of what we talked about with working with power, it's like, Ooh, lots of pretty colors. Like, no, stick to the one color first and <laughs> focus on that. Cause it, yeah, it is really, um, it can be very overwhelming and you just might get very exciting. And it's like, no, that, that data point has nothing to do with what you're, what you're doing or what you wanted to achieve at first. Right. Just because yeah. the graph is going up right. on the computer doesn't right. necessarily trend. mean, you know, things are better. Right. Um, what do you think is the most, like, common, I guess, thing to see an athlete uh, need to work on, I guess? And that's hmm. a broad question. Yeah. So, um, 
I tend to think of biomechanics in, if we want to simplify it, let's go into two categories. One would be we're trying to improve our form. I'm trying to get objectively better with certain outcome measures. If it's a runner, uh, maybe it's, and I always come back to the pelvis because I'm really into the pelvis in running, but uh, like a stable pelvis Mm -hmm. with smooth motion and controlled motion. Um, Objectively, like, yeah, I want more of that. I want, um, if I have one leg that's really weak and just doesn't produce as much force, or, you know, um, look if you look at your power balance on the bike, Mm -hmm. one leg is always like, it's like a 40-60 balance. Obviously, I want that 40 to be a little bit higher because it's just not, I have a big strong leg here with all kinds of muscle and it's just underutilized. I'm not, I'm not getting what I could out of it. So there's certain things that are absolute. Like, yeah, we want to just get better over time slowly at some of these things and see some improvement. The other thing would be, um, having just a good measure of how you move and what your signature is and, um, what your little, you know, uh, your little specific tendencies and, and habits and movement details are, and just trying to, have a way to track that you're, you're able to maintain your normal movement for longer up to whatever the duration of your race is. And, um, I think that is something that gets over clouded a lot with, with athletes is everybody's always striving for better form. I'm just going to use runners as an example, because that's the easiest for me, but runners are runner coaches are always like, you know, stay tall, drive your arms. Um, I don't know, pick up your feet, you know, all these different coaching cues and stuff. And it's all geared at like, you need to get better at doing this. Um, but a thing that's, I think overlooked a lot is inherently, you know, the way people move is not a bad thing, but you don't get injured necessarily because you have an asymmetry. You don't get injured necessarily because you do a weird thing with your arm. Um, there are plenty of runners at the highest level that have the wackiest running form you've ever oh, seen sure. <laughs> and they've never been injured in their life. And it's, um, you know, injuries are a whole nother, whole nother topic, but you know, personally, I think injuries are more affected by, by training load and, and how you manage your, your recovery and things like that. Um, but when you see a runner who is running a marathon, elite runner running a marathon, they're going for 220, and you know, every, every time they get to the 19 mile mark, they just have, they start to have a lot of changes in the way that they're moving. Um, and it could be out of their control. It might just be due to fatigue, some of the muscular fatigue, or maybe it's, um, fatigue, but it's something that's controllable, you know, like they just kind of tend to start doing that when they feel a certain way. Um, for that, I think athletes can focus a lot on this is the way I normally move. I should be able to move this way under a variety of conditions in fatiguing conditions, in different race conditions, and be able to just maintain like what is already good for me right now. So kind of a roundabout answer, but I think that's what, I think it's overlooked a lot. We're all, we're all reaching for the gold standard and not focusing as much on what I can do right now and just being able to, like you said before, extend it for longer. Hmm. Do you think that, because obviously you, what you kind of just fringed on is if, so let's say that marathoner um, does experience and I would say a lot of people in most sports, I would imagine, experience uh, varying form or technique under fatigue compared to fresh. Um, is that something that you've trained athletes on? Like basically, all right, well, yes, you're able to do this perfect form here, but how about in four hours are you able to then um, do that? Because that's a pretty difficult thing to train. Yeah, definitely. Um, I've... I've 
I've worked on it a bit with okay. with, a, with a decent bit of athletes. Uh, having the Liomo as a resource is is pretty good for that actually, mm-hmm. um, because it really allows you to see changes really well. So that's that's one of the main reasons that I like it a lot. Um, so yeah, I I would say the the approach that I would take to work on that with people is one you got to figure out um, where if you can where things are failing, what changes first or what changes with the highest magnitude. Obviously, with if you have a multiple sensor system like Liomo, you can see that. Otherwise, maybe you use camera, uh, mm-hmm. video at different stages of a long effort or um, on a treadmill with mocap or something like that. Um, identify what breaks down first. Identify, you know, what it is that, you know, it's, oh, I can make it two hours at X pace before that starts to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you got to decide, most importantly, is it um, actionable? Is it something that I can actually, like if you're really tired and you start doing something and I say, Hey, stop doing that. Can you, I mean, does it matter? Like, can yeah, you even change you it if you control. want to, like, yeah. or are you just, or are you just tired and your muscles aren't, you know, it's not the same as being fresh. So decide if it is really actionable. If it's not actionable, um, I would work on outside, you know, a gym or you know, strength and conditioning, some sort of like supplementary work to try to like bolster that, that area or that movement pattern. If it is something that's actionable, then yeah, that makes it much easier to actually implement in training. And a really cool idea, um, I explored a little bit with the Leomo sensors is finding the break point at a given pace. Let's say it's marathon pace for a marathoner or, um, 5k race pace for a 5k runner. Although it does seem to be the, the longer efforts, you see this a little bit more, but um, having time trial and just mark that duration where things start to break off mm-hmm. and you know mark what body part or where it manifests first. And then just um, either build training around that. So instead of a 60 minute tempo run, if things break down at the 30 minute mark, maybe some broken tempo sets, maybe I'm breaking it up into 15 minute sets with rest and focusing on maintaining that metric for longer. Or um, just some sort of cueing, coaching, cueing, reinforcement, and let them know, like, when you get to this point, you know, we typically we're seeing some breakdown in this area. So what I want you to focus on is this. And it's important that that is a simple cue that is actionable and easy to understand. You don't want like this, you know, keep your, uh, you know, make sure you toe off well and then keep your foot straight back and then swing your leg <laughs> forward. And after you swing it forward, I want you to land and like, it could just be way too much, yeah. uh, over focus, you know? point your pinky toe, yeah, your, separate your pinky toe <laughs> yeah. a little bit from the other one. <laughs> what you can't do that. No, yeah. so it's gotta be simple. It's yeah. gotta be actionable yeah. and yeah, it can be trained for sure. Yeah. I mean, I guess that, that it comes down to is the fatigue inevitable, right? Like mm-hmm. if you, are you able to actually just prolong the fatigue, like just make the athlete stronger so that the fatigue never really gets there? Or is it like literally a hundred mile run so you're going to get there eventually? Um, or is it your pace going to then increase so then you hit it all, hit it again eventually? Um, what about if, like side question, but if you notice that something, I guess is their trigger or their, their first whatever muscle group starts to, not fail, but fatigue, um, over you know, like that tipping point that you were kind of talking about, it, would that be something that you then say, okay, we need to train this maybe on the strength side. So we need to do a little bit of gym work to get this bolstered so that, um, maybe it won't be that trigger point anymore. Yeah. Um, that goes back a little bit to what the thinking about what the source of that 
is maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's true. Especially with running. It's uh, sometimes the, the foot lands a certain way or takes off a certain way from the ground and the foot may not actually be what's causing that. You know, mm-hmm. it's just kind of doing what it's doing what it can with what's available. And maybe it's something in the hip or elsewhere that's, that's kind of contributing to that. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it, it, it's hard to have a, a super specific, you know, you kind of have right, to do some course. detective work, you yeah. do some detective work. You got to see where things break down and then try to understand, you know, if, if I had a little bit more mobility here, if I had a little bit more strength here, um, I could definitely do some work in the gym and improve that. So understanding the source is a big, is a big thing. And as a, as a side note, um, when I keep talking about movement changing, but, uh, the reason that changes in movement or tracking when you break, when your movement changes or how it changes is important because to me, that's one of the biggest, um, you know, injury risk factors is when your movement patterns change and working with a lot of different PTs and physios and stuff over the last couple of years, um, discussing biomechanics, a lot of them would take the same kind of the same fundamental approaches, you know, you develop a certain movement competency or a tolerance for movement and loads and forces within what you're normally in and what you train often. And, um, say you take yourself out of that and you go into a totally different movement pattern, the tolerance for that load or that joint angle or that range of motion can be really different. And you can be a lot more susceptible to overloading unintentionally when you're not trying to. And so, um, one of the reasons why I think fatigue is really important then is if I, uh, fatigue and you know, every, let's say I'm, I do a huge workout yesterday. I go out for a run today. I'm pressing it a little bit. Um, I'm totally wrecked and my movement is all different. I'm, I'm operating in a different pattern and I'm adding stress to tissues and, uh, joints and all these different structures that, you know, maybe it's not as acclimated to that as I, think it is mm. or that I'm, you know, usually like when I'm in my normal movement patterns, what I think I can do. So, um, changing movement when your movement changes, injury risk can be a factor then. And so we want to try to resist that as much as possible. And that's why I think, yeah, we want to work towards a gold standard, but at the very least we need to work with what we have now and be able to maintain it until the end of the race. The other side of that is then efficiency, of course. Like, you know, we all develop our own efficiency around how we move right now. There's, there's a lot of self-selection in running that your brain does. Um, if you tell somebody who's never run before to go out and run, they'll probably hit a cadence that's pretty close to their mathematically optimized cadence. It's just, brain's really good like that. And so um, there's a lot of self-optimization. You're pretty economical the way you are. So, you know, that's another reason to try to like preserve it and be able to build the duration that you can at least maintain that because when things start breaking down, then risk to kind of like lose that economy and mm. then the pace and everything drops too. Hmm. Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I guess that that goes into, um, overload then. So if you're targeting an overload period and you're really training a bunch, um, that goes into multi-day. So we just talked about a little bit on the fatigue and form and uh, technique that'll change when getting tired throughout one ride, but let alone maybe two weeks of hard training, who knows what you'll look like at the end of that. So it's, that would be really interesting to be able to track and actually see that. Um, especially as a like virtual coach. Yeah, totally. Um, some tools are getting there. Yeah. Some tools are definitely getting there. So, uh, next 10 years should be pretty exciting. I think on that front, yeah. I know a couple of companies that are just in their infancy stages, but are doing some, like they got some really cool ideas. So huh. 
yeah, that idea of, um, you know, TSS is essentially metabolic load, but what about like a biomechanical load? Yeah. Can I track that over time? How do I, is it, is it lagging way behind my TSS, you know, or am I really high fatigued and biomechanical stress is really high, but you know, maybe it doesn't exactly match up with the metabolic stress. That's, that's where you go into some pretty interesting topics there of tracking multiple. Man, I just, I I want like a, and if this happens someday, somebody please come back and point this out. But I want like a light up map essentially of my athletes for entire durations of multiple activities where essentially it just shows me exactly, um, like percentage of each muscle use, um, basically allowing me to have a fatigue score all encompassing. That's kind of what I want. I think we need to make that. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Sounds <laughs> like a million dollar idea. Way out of my realm. <laughs> I would just, yeah. All right. I'll, I'll create like a poster for it and trademark it and we'll get it going. If anybody has good ideas, email. Yeah. Let, yeah, let me know. <laughs> yes. yes, exactly. Yeah. Reach out. Let me know. Um, all right. Dang. That was, you had some great questions. So thank you. And thank you for joining me. Um, yeah. Thank you. Those were Awesome questions from you. Great discussion. Love the recording studio again. <laughs> Great beer from Ryan Geist. All around, 10 out of 10. Sick. Perfect. Uh, man, okay. Joseph, how do they? How does everyone find you? How do they find your photo of Adam Hansen on a treadmill? Uh, you can follow me on Instagram at joseph.caveretta, C-A-V-A-R-R-E-T-T-A. Uh, Facebook Flatirons Endurance is my coaching company. I, I do have a Facebook page for that. Can direct you in some more directions with the email and everything on there. So cool. Yeah, feel free to reach out. Sweet. Thank you. Um, all right. I hope everyone enjoyed our conversation. This is another long one that I might be splitting up into two parts, um, but that's fine by me. I don't. Um, basically, I'm like just trying to let these conversations be dynamic so they can be what they'll be. Um, but yeah, let us know what you're thinking. Um, find us on Instagram at Training Edge Pod, um, and you know, let us know. You know, if you have coaches in mind that you'd like to have me talk to. Um, or if you have topics that you would love for us to discuss, because I just show up to these things with questions. Um, and yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of hoping that I can expand on this. I might have more than one coach join me. That would be kind of fun. Um, but yeah, till next episode, um, everyone have a wonderful, wonderful week or month and, um, yeah, keep finding your edge.